Good evening. It's good to be with you all, and good morning to those who are joining us Sunday morning. Um, before I just jump right into what we're going to talk about tonight as we continue in our series on 1 Corinthians 13, I actually just want to take a moment here, and even as we sang that and as we prepare to look at God's Word, I, I just kind of had a sense that perhaps tonight might be appropriate for us to take a moment. I wonder if there's some of us that are feeling particularly heavily burdened this evening, and I don't just mean by our current circumstances, but perhaps in particular what we just sang, the idea that Jesus, our King of mercy, could forgive us uh, and, and does forgive us when we um, stumble and fall. And I wonder if some of you might be feeling, maybe some of you at home on Sunday morning, might be feeling like there's just something that you can't be forgiven of. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that was my sense as I was just um, waiting on the Lord and praying. So can we just take a moment and just bow our heads before the Lord? And I'd love for you to just take a posture saying, Lord, whatever you wanna deal with in me tonight, I'm, I'm prepared. I'm prepared to receive it. I'm just prepared to wait on you and receive from your word. So let's do that. Let's just take a moment to do that and then I'll, I'll pray for us. It's good to be quiet and still before you, here with my brothers and sisters. And Spirit, I'd ask that what you would be communicating is the truth of your word, that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. You have made us then your ambassadors, Christ, ministers of reconciliation, not counting our trespasses against us, but releasing us from the penalty of our sin so that we might walk in righteousness. Forgive us if we come sometimes to gather with your people in a perfunctory way. We are particularly reminded in this season, it is not to be overlooked what a privilege it is that we gather and worship. So I thank you that we've gathered, whether uh, here physically in person, and some of us will be gathered online on Sunday and again on, in person on Sunday, and each is a privilege. So thank you for it. Would you now take your word and allow it to pierce our hearts? Would you use me as your vessel, your mouthpiece? I'm gonna speak what is true according to your word, that we might receive it. Give us tender hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, so if you have a Bible, turn there with me. We'll put the words on your screen as well, at home and on the screens here. Um, you know, this is the point in a series, this, the name of this series is the greatest of these is love because we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 which concludes with that sentiment, the greatest of all the things that are being talked about, faith and hope, the greatest of all the attributes that are good attributes 
is to be a person steeped in love, and we've seen again and again that Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that love is the mark of Christian maturity, nothing else. And there are other things that are good, right, to have rich spiritual experience, to be deep in our worship, deep in our prayer, depth of knowledge of God's word and of his very nature, but among all those things, what's greater than all of them is love. And if we have those things but don't have love, we don't have maturity. And so we keep reminding ourselves of that, friends. And this is the point I know about midway through a sermon series where it's easy to start to check out. It's easy to start to go, yes, I know, we've been talking about this again and again. Don't check out with me. F friends, is that okay? Don't check out with me. Here's what we're doing. I wanna show you a picture. This is a picture of a snowflake but it's a picture of a snowflake under a microscope. Isn't it really pretty? It's really beautiful. By the way, if you Google things under a microscope, most of what you get is really gross looking. But there's some really beautiful stuff, and a snowflake is one of them. Look at the colors and the light reflecting. I mean, you wouldn't know a snowflake looked like that until you put it under a microscope. And I wanted to show you that because that's what we're doing this summer. We are putting love under a microscope. So each week, we are talking about a different color, a different shape, a different part of what love is. And I, I, I so don't want us to lose sight of that. I don't want it to grow, I don't want it to grow for us as a, yes, I know, we're talking about love again, uh, as if it's old hat. I want us to remember that what we're really trying to do is because love is the mark of Christian maturity, we're trying to put it under a microscope so that we would know what it is acquire uh, God's love in our hearts and grow in it. And you know, it takes serious study. It takes serious concentration. It takes serious time to be able to understand something as deep and as rich and as pure as the love of God, yes? And so we wanna understand it. We wanna grow in it. We wanna be marked by it. I mean, of all seasons, of all seasons in the history of the world, this may be one of those seasons where as Christians, we can't just talk about the fact that we're supposed to be loving people. We have to be loving people. I mean, we really have to be loving people. Friends, I have seen it again and again and again in these days, and it's, it grows harder the longer uh, you know, we deal with the effects of, of this virus in our world. And friends, I wanna encourage you to press forward in love. And every morning when you wake up, say, how will I grow in love again today so that I might grow in Christ again today? That's our ambition, that's our goal, and I think it has been well-timed that God has, had planned long before uh, COVID-19 ever appeared on the scene to have us this summer examining this chapter of Scripture. So look with me at it, if you will. Here's, here's what we're gonna find today. Last week we heard, love is not, anybody remember what was it? Irritable, love is not irritable, and, and George, uh, our worship pastor, did such a great job of unpacking that for us. I was convicted by it. Uh, what a good reminder that love is not irritable. And this week we turn to the fact that love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. Uh, now the ESV translates it resentful. If you have an NIV or an NASB, a couple other English translations, you'll find love keeps no record of wrongs. And this is one of those times where I think the NIV does a better job than the translation we typically use, which is the English Standard Version, because love keeps no record of wrongs. I think it's a richer translation of what uh, Paul is trying to communicate here. So let's read the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 13 together, and then let's examine what it means that love is not resentful or love keeps no record of wrongs. So chapter 13, 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse one, says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong 
or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing if I give away all I have. And if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Or we might say there, it does not keep a record of wrongs. So let's ask ourselves a question. Here's our roadmap for tonight. We're gonna ask, what does that mean? What does it mean that love keeps no record of wrongs? Uh, I wanna show you why that is a distinctly Christian trait when it comes to love, because friends, we should not be shy about the reality that we should love better than people who don't know Jesus. And that may sound arrogant, but it should be true of us. Christ has done a work in us. I get so tired as a pastor of feeling like you, 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 uh, we go through you know, just year by year by year by year. And I understand that we all have tough times where we don't love well, but Christ should change us. We should be different year after year. We should love better than we did the year before. I want that for my life, I want it for your life. And I, I don't want us, to, I think sometimes we, we act as if the only difference Jesus makes is that we're not gonna go to hell. And that nothing, we just have very little expectation that we are going to be transformed in this life in major ways. And friends, I want you to let go of those low expectations and begin to expect rich and deep and powerful transformation in your life. God's word is powerful, his spirit is powerful. Jesus has made you a new creation. You are not what you, what you once were if you were in Christ Jesus. And so we should gladly say, the scriptures testify, to we have a spirit that is alive in us, the spirit of Christ Jesus, and because that's true, there are things that are distinctly Christian. There are things about life that are, so good things that are distinctly for those who follow Jesus not to say that those who don't have him can't do some version of those things, but there is a richer, deeper, purer way that those of us who follow him should be walking in those things. So I wanna to talk to you about why this particular aspect of love is uniquely, distinctly Christian. I'll tell you why I mean that, right? And then I wanna look at a couple, I wanna take a page out of Jonathan Edwards' playbook here, who, when he was a young man, wrote 70 resolutions. Has anyone read Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions? So they're really rich. If you've never seen them, I encourage you to read them. Think about a 20-something-year-old man sitting down and going, I wanna make resolutions to grow in Christ. What do those resolutions look like? And then writing some of the richest sort of tomes, if you will, uh, of I resolve myself by the grace of God to do these things. And I wanna offer you four resolutions that, that you and I should be making so that we might love each other with a love that keeps no record of wrongs. So I wanna give us four resolutions by way of application. So that's, that's kinda where we're gonna go tonight. So let's start with that first question. What does it mean to keep no record of wrongs? I already told you, um, the ESV has translated this word resentful. Here's the word, it's, it's logizomai, that's the Greek word. And it is richer than simply uh, not keeping a running tally of all that someone has done wrong. So when I say love keeps no record of wrongs, you probably think, well, what that means is you don't keep score. You don't remind someone all the time of the wrong things that they've done, right? And those of you who are married should be thinking about this as a really pivotal part of your marriage. I'm not gonna keep bringing up the old sins, right? Within the body of Christ, we hear that and we think, yeah, it's probably a bad idea for us to keep kind of a running tally. Like, oh yeah, remember when you did this? 
And I remember when you did that. And I remember 10 years ago when you did this. And I remember 16 years ago. Some of you have those personalities. You can remember every detail. I forget them. And it always amazes me. It always amazes me, that kind of recall, right? But some of us have that. We hash them over in our minds. We're gonna talk about that a little bit tonight and how we maybe get past that. Uh, but this text or this term means more than just not keeping a running tally or not reminding someone of the wrongs they do. It really has to do with what you think is most fundamentally true about a person. So when Paul says we should not keep a record of wrongs, we should not legizomai, what he's saying is you should not essentially assume that what is most fundamentally true about a person is the sin they've just committed particularly if they've committed it against you. Now again, this is within the body of Christ. This is among believers. And he's saying, when a, when a fellow believer sins against you, you have to, in order to keep no record of wrongs, resist the temptation to say to yourself and perhaps to them or maybe even to another person, you know what's true about this person? What is most true about them is this sin that they just committed to me. That's the mark of their identity, the mark of their character. That's the revelation of who they are. Because if they're in Christ Jesus, it's not what's most fundamentally true about them. And the person who doesn't keep a record of wrongs keeps in sight always, even when they've been sinned against, what is actually most true about other people who are in Christ. You following me? Does it make sense? All right, so let me give you a couple of examples of where this term gets used, different places in the scripture. So the term is often translated not uh, resentment. It's not often translated doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Here's how it usually gets translated, to understand or to count. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, just two examples here. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, same letter that we're in now in, in chapter 13, so a couple chapters before this. And he says, this is how someone should regard us, how they should legizomai us, how they should understand who we are as servants of Christ. And then he goes on to talk about what that means. So here's what that means. He's saying, this is what you should think to be true about us, Corinthians. When you think about me, Paul, this is what you should understand to be most true about me. And then you should understand all my actions and all my words through what you know to be true about me. So that's one demonstration of when Paul uses this term. And he means this is how you should think about us or regard us. In Romans chapter four, verse three, maybe the richest use. In chapter four of Romans, this term gets used uh, numerous, numerous times. And in chapter four, verse three, we find this, a famous verse talking about why we know righteousness is by faith and not by works. He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, that's our term legizomai, was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, it was attributed to him. It was given to him. He received through faith a righteousness equivalent to the righteousness of God because it was God's righteousness that was given to him. Now here's all I want you to get from that, from those two, from Romans chapter four, verse three, from 1 Corinthians chapter four, when Paul is using that, what he's saying is, what he's saying is when he uses this term, this is how you think about someone, what you think to be most fundamentally true about a person. So when he then turns around and uses this term in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, certainly he means love does not keep a running tally of all the wrongs someone has done. But he means something much more than that. What he means is love chooses to see what is most true about another Christian. And what is most true about them is not their sin, it's the righteousness they've been given by Christ. Even 
even though they may have just committed a grievous sin. You with me? That's hard to do. It's incredibly hard to do. It's challenging, but we have the ability to do it in Christ. And friends, let me just tell you, this is not just a little trick of the mind. I'm not up here trying to tell you, here's how you kind of trick yourself into forgiving somebody. Here's how you kind of fool yourself into thinking good thoughts about someone and not sort of dragging them through the mud over their past sins and the things that they've done. You gotta trick your mind into thinking this way. No, what I'm trying to expose you to is the absolute fundamental reality of what is true of us in Christ Jesus. And you know, often I would say as believers, we sometimes are actually, well, actually, let me, let me come back to it. I'm gonna, I, I think we struggle with this and I'll tell you why I think so. Forgive me, that's very disjointed. I kind of looked like I was going one way. I faked left, now I'm going right. Forgive me. All right, so here's, here's what I want to do. Let me explain why this is an expression of love that is unique to Christians, and then I'll tell you why I think we struggle with it. So it's not that we're the only ones who can stop keeping a running tally of sin against us. I think an unbeliever can do that as well. Someone who doesn't have Christ can let go of a wrong that someone does against them. But here's why I say it's uniquely Christian, this type of love. Because if, if what it means to keep no record of wrongs really means to keep in focus what is fundamentally true about a person and thereby, and then treat them according to that rather than according to perhaps the sin they've just committed, it's only true of those who are in Christ Jesus that they've been transformed into a new thing. Therefore, it's only within the body of Christ that we can love each other this way truly. So when an unbeliever, just to give you an example, when an unbeliever says, I'm gonna let go, I'm, I'm gonna let go of this sin that was done against me, this wrong that was done against me. That's an admirable thing and it's a good thing, but I don't think it's a sustainable thing for very long. And the reason it's not a sustainable thing is because they have to create a fiction about the inner workings of the person whom they are forgiving. And that fiction is that they've been transformed. Scripture is very clear, friends, uh, that if we are not in Christ Jesus, we, we are steeped in sin clothed in it, it's, it's who we are, it's our fundamental nature, but in Christ Jesus, that nature gets changed. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 17, 18, 19, right, where he tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, the old has passed away, the new has come. There's a fundamental transformation at the deepest level. And so when two Christians come together and we're called to love each other this way, the reason that's possible is because of the change that Christ has worked. It's because it's absolutely true. I'm not dealing with a fiction. When you sin against me and I look at you and I say, I choose to see that what's true about you is that you are righteous because of the blood of Christ. I choose to see that and to believe it and then to treat you accordingly. Doesn't mean we don't have a long conversation about sin. It doesn't mean we don't need reconciliation. It doesn't mean we live in a fantasy world where we pretend that sin didn't hurt. None of that is true. But it is also true that I will choose to approach you in that moment and in that conversation and in that way and in that season. I will choose to approach you as one who has been made righteous by Christ and that is what is absolutely true about you. It's the, it's the weapon you have to learn to take up if you're going to forgive, if you're not gonna keep bringing up the wrongs. You see, here's why I think we're bad at it. I think often unbelievers are better at this than we are because I think unbelievers are often better at believing a fiction than we are at believing a truth. 
So an unbeliever who says, I'm going, to, I'm going to choose to believe good things about that person is choosing to believe good things about a person who is still steeped in and lost in sin. At the, in their very fundamental nature, has not been redeemed in righteousness. And so you have to fictionalize that a bit or perhaps just kind of figure out a way to go, well, I'll just, I'll just let it be. But I often think those who are outside of Christ are better at believing that fiction than we are at believing what is absolutely true of one another. Someone sins against us, someone in the body, someone within our church family sins against us. And we are bad at thinking about what is theologically true about that person in that moment because it hurts, I understand it, it hurts, and we immediately take up our grievances. And what do we do? We, start to, we, we, we stop thinking about what is true theologically of that person and we just start thinking about the hurt they've just caused us. And our response then turns into a response that's no different than the world's response and sometimes lesser than the world's response. And it's because we're not as good at believing the truth. We end up believing a fiction, which is that person is not righteous by the blood of Christ. Now, I hope you're tracking with me. It's challenging, it's hard to do, but that's what, this scripture is so much richer in this one word. This is how rich scripture is, friends. One word is transformative when we understand it and believe it. One phrase, how rich is God's word? How steeped in it we need to be. And friends, here's what this is saying. I don't want you to read past and go, oh, yeah, I gotta guard against resentment. Oh yeah, I gotta stop reminding people of their sins. That's, a, that's good, We're gonna, you, should, you should do that. That's a part of this, but it's more. It's more. You have to begin to think with rich theological acumen about the people who offend you and hurt you. You have to begin to think about what's absolutely true according to God's word about them. Again, not whitewashing over, not pretending like sin doesn't hurt or or doesn't need forgiveness or doesn't need repentance. That repentance doesn't need to happen, right? Not pretending any of those things. All right, so then let's, let's ask this question. Why must Christians love each other this way? Because failure to do so is failure to acknowledge God's work and failure to acknowledge his work robs him of glory. Failure to acknowledge his work robs him of glory. Remember last week as George was talking to us about love is not irritable, one of the things I thought was so helpful that he reminded us of was he said, hey, the reason that our love can't be filled, we can't be irritable and be loving at the same time is not just because it's morally good for us to not be irritable and it's not because it's just good for us to let go of our irritation. What did he say? He said, it's the fact that God is slow to anger with us. He's not irritable. And because God is slow to anger, because he's not irritable, we wanna be like him. So that our love not being irritable is rooted in the very nature of God. Let me just build on top of that now. And this week what we're seeing is that our love for one another is rooted in who God is in his very nature, but it's also rooted in the new nature he's given to us. So if last week the power to obey the command love is not irritable is in seeing God, his very nature, being slow to anger, patient, full of loving kindness. If that was true last week, we're still rooted in the very nature and character of God again this week, but we're rooted in it as it displays itself in the new creation that all his people are. And seeing and understanding that then becomes our weapon, it becomes our our power source to begin to do this, okay? All right, so that's the first two things. Why is this uniquely Christian? And then before that, what, is, what does this mean? So hopefully, 
Hopefully we've got a sense there. Now, can I just offer you four resolutions? Four resolutions. Oh, by the way, let me say here, what does this mean for our, our love within the church of people who don't share our faith? Does it mean that because they have not been fundamentally transformed that I can keep a record of wrongs against them? That I can say, yeah, oh good, I can remind them of their shortcomings. No, of course not. The way we do that, though, is a little different. We don't, we don't do it based upon who they've been transformed into. We do it by the 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which I brought up already a couple times, the 2 Corinthians chapter 5 truth, that we have been reconciled to God and made ministers of reconciliation. And so we, we look to what they could be in Christ Jesus, what transformation could come. So we don't keep a record of wrongs against them, but we don't deny the reality that that fundamental transformation at the heart level has not taken place if Christ has not come into the life. That's an important distinction to make. So just wanna make sure that you didn't walk away thinking, great, awesome, I can hold grudges against unbelievers. That's, we don't wanna do that either. All right, so now let's ask four resolutions. Let me give them to you. Here's number one. And I just, I, I would love it if you would join me in these resolutions. I've been pondering them all week. So resolved, resolved not to meditate on the sins of another believer any longer than necessary to promote holiness and reconciliation in the body of Christ. Not to meditate on the sins of another believer any longer than necessary to promote holiness and reconciliation in the body. Hopefully you get what I'm saying there. What I mean there is I am going to choose to not turn over in my mind again and again the sins of other believers. I'm gonna choose, now it doesn't mean, I, again, that I deny that they happen, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna ponder them, I'm not gonna turn them over. Sometimes we take great delight in turning over the wrongs done against us, don't we? We, we turn them over in our mind and we kind of look at them through every angle, kind of the way I was talking about putting uh, love under a microscope. We like to put the sins done against us under a microscope and say, Boy, this was another rotten angle and this was another rotten aspect of why that was done to me and we love to turn those things over and over and there's, there's a variety of reasons for that. One is probably self-protection. I'm never gonna let that be, happen again so I'm gonna make sure I know how to look out for it by turning it over and over again. One is probably that we feel better by comparison when we turn the sins of others over and over in our mind and often, can I just warn you, if you're turning the sins of someone else over in your mind and kind of examining them from all angles, do you know what you're probably doing? You're probably setting yourself up to justify a sin in your own life. That's probably what you're doing. I can't guarantee it, but I've seen it time and time again. What we're really doing is making ourselves feel better by comparison and then we justify what we view to be a lesser sin, something we know is disobedience, we know is not honoring to God, but hey, it's not this thing that I've turned over in my mind. Be careful if you find your mind is prone to really meditate on these things and resolve yourself, friend. Resolve yourself to not allow your mind to churn on the sins of other believers, whether they're done against you or done against someone else that you know, to not turn on those. We don't hold them in our minds and ponder them any longer than is necessary than it takes to bring about reconciliation within the body between two believers who are not reconciled or to call that person to greater holiness. It is appropriate to discuss the sins that we commit with one another. With one another. You know that, right? It is appropriate to have those conversations, to challenge one another, to even confront one another. Paul does it again and again in the scriptures. In fact, this letter we're reading right now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, before it comes Paul confronting them about their sins 
over and over and over again. And yet you see his absolute love for them when you read through the letter, how much he adores and cherishes and loves them in spite of the fact that they've sinned against him. I get the sense that he's not pondering those sins over and over again, but he's willing to confront them with them as is necessary. But resolved, resolved not to meditate on the sins of another believer any longer than is necessary. Have you seen the movie Lord of the Rings? Anybody seen the movie Lord of the Rings or read the books, Lord of the Rings? If you know that, the greatest, the great illustration of this is Gollum when he finds the ring. And what does, he, what does Gollum do when he finds the ring? He is obsessed with the ring and he talks about it and he he thinks about it and he holds it up and it's, he calls it his precious. That's what some of us do with the sins of others. It, it's like we just fixate on them. They're precious to us that we can ponder them. And what happens to Gollum in the movie, if you've seen her in the book, he becomes twisted in his mind and twisted in his heart into something completely other than what he was to begin with because he is so focused on, in, in Tolkien's book, on power and love of power. But here we might offer that loving, meditating on the sins of other believers twists us and turns us and creates bitterness and resentment and causes us to keep this record of wrong. So that's resolution number one. Romans chapter 12, verse two is helpful to us there where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what, church? Anybody know? By the renewal of your mind. What we do with our minds is deeply important. Resolve, resolve. If we are going to love one another By keeping no record of wrongs, then we are going to have to be disciplined with our minds. We're gonna have to resolve to be disciplined with our minds. Number two, resolved not to speak about the sin of another believer to others for any purpose other than pursuing reconciliation between believers. Never to speak about the sin of another believer to others for any purpose other than than bringing about reconciliation between believers. You and I do not need to speak about one another's sins to other people. We speak to each other about it, and if I'm speaking to someone else, it better be so that we can pursue reconciliation where there's been a brokenness. And there is no other reason, without exception, there is no other reason to spend time talking about the sins of another believer. Now, I know that's challenging because sometimes you think, well, I got wounded, I got hurt, and I needed someone to talk to about this. And I would say that's fine as long as the talking is about how you might pursue reconciliation with that person. How you might share with them that that they have sinned against you. It's appropriate. Matthew 18 is very clear to go to another believer and to say, you've sinned against me. And I need to tell you, and I need to tell you how that hurt and wounded me. And we need to be reconciled. That's absolutely appropriate. But beyond pursuing that sort of reconciliation, there is no valid reason to talk about the sin of another believer to others. It only drives home division in the body. It does not promote love. That's a challenging one, yes? My guess is right now, as did I, you can think of a time when you spoke about the sin of another believer to someone else. And you know it wasn't for the purpose of reconciliation. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32 says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And we read that and we think, okay, uh, that sounds like maybe saying, using bad language, right? Or, or saying something that makes you think about things that aren't pure and, and good. And of course that's included, but look at where he goes from there. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace 
to those who hear. And I would say, give grace to those who hear doesn't just mean make them feel good. It means remind them of the grace of Jesus with the way you speak about one another. So that if I speak about the sin of another believer, am I reminding that person I'm speaking to about the fact that I am covered by grace, that person who sinned against me is covered by grace? and you are covered by grace. I'm not saturating our thinking in grace, I'm saturating our thinking in revenge. I'm saturating our thinking in getting back at that person. Look where he goes from there, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That should be sobering to all of us. What did he just tell you? It grieves God's very spirit when we do something other than this. Do not grieve the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I immediately think to myself, huh, it seems very clear to me that I should be resolved not to speak about the sin of another believer to another believer unless it's for the pursuit of a reconciled relationship. And there is no other reason. Had this, this was in my life very recently. I I was, um, had a disagreement with with another believer and we were uh, talking about this and I had to really ponder whether, I had to think about um, whether to share, I I felt uh, grieved against, I, I felt as if I had been sinned against and I had to really wrestle with, okay, what's the appropriate approach to this? And I wrestled with whether to talk to my wife about it. I said, you know, Amanda and I pretty much have a policy that we just tell each other everything. You know, we just talk about everything uh, that's going on in our lives so that we can help one another. And, and I ultimately decided to talk to her about it. And here's why. Here's why. After, after thinking, praying, I talked to Amanda about it because I, I truly needed to know her perspective as to whether I was accurate in believing I had been sinned against. I needed to see from her eyes, I trust her wisdom, and I needed to understand and then get her understanding of how I might pursue reconciliation. So I wanted to know from her, what do you think? But can I just tell you, even as I felt, okay, that's the right approach, I need her wisdom, I need her understanding, I need her counsel, so I'm gonna tell her about this situation, then I'm gonna ask her if, if I'm seeing it correctly, and you know, she's my wife, she might be prone to be a little biased, right? but I'm just gonna ask her and help her and she's also not afraid to tell me when I'm wrong. Uh, And so I'm gonna ask her, but can I just tell you what I had to fight in my heart in the moment that I was telling her? Just that little part that goes, and I kinda also want you to to take up my my team here and say, oh, that guy, that person was awful to you. And that, uh, you know, like, I kinda want that too. And, And boy, I had to put that to death. I had to say, no, 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 no. This can only be, if I'm gonna speak about this, it can only be so that I can pursue a reconciled relationship where I felt grieved, where I felt sinned against. And because my wife's a godly woman, she gave me wise counsel. We moved forward and and the Lord was present in that situation in a really rich way. I'm very, very thankful for it. So resolution number three. So resolve to discipline our speech, resolve to discipline our minds. If we're going to love one another, we're gonna love one another without keeping a record of wrongs. Number three, resolved not to bring up any past sin to a fellow believer once forgiveness has been asked for and given. 
resolved to never bring it up again. What is the point? Why? If forgiveness has been, now again, I know I'm making some assumptions here, right? Let's deal with the situation where someone has come and said, I need you to forgive me, we've forgiven them, and then haven't you had that moment where you've kind of brought it back up maybe a month later, two months later, remember when you, remember when that, that's exactly the kind of what we most think of when we think of keeping a record of wrongs, it's getting reminded of something that we did. Can I just tell you, friends, resolve yourself to put that to death. When you've forgiven, never mention it again. Why? Why would you need to? It's forgiven. The penalty has been paid. Can I tell you that when you raise something that you claim to have forgiven, you show that your forgiveness is a cheap forgiveness. It's not the forgiveness of the cross because the cross has paid the penalty and washed it in the blood and it is done. It is paid for. It is erased. It is gone. And if you keep bringing it up, what you're saying is, I haven't given you a cross forgiveness. I've given you some piddly version of forgiveness that I'm manufactured in my own will, and that's not worth squat. The only forgiveness that's worth anything is the forgiveness that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. But when you've given that forgiveness, resolve yourself to never raise it again. To never raise it again. Can I just tell you, that one will bless your marriages if you're married. That one will bless your marriage. It'll bless your friendships and it will bless us as a church body when we resolve to never bring it up again. Last one. Last one. Number four. Resolved to ask for forgiveness from other believers as soon as I am aware of any way in which I have sinned against them. Resolved to ask for forgiveness from other believers as soon as I am aware of any way in which I have sinned against them. Now this may seem like the opposite of keeping no record of wrongs. I flipped the script here, and now I'm talking to you about the time when you're the one that's committed the sin, not being the one who's been sinned against. And so you might think, well, what does this have to do with keeping no record of wrongs? Can I just tell you, within the body, within our church family, when you're quick to ask for forgiveness, and then you receive it, you receive from them that they keep no record of your wrongs, you will be better able to then keep no record of someone else's wrongs. When you know you've been forgiven much, you will forgive much. And so a part of learning to keep no record of wrongs is learning that you need to receive that as much as you need to give it. And the more you receive it then, the better you'll be able to give it. Does that make sense? Imagine it this way. If you're, anybody ever like done a trust fall, gone to like a low ropes course on a team building exercise and done one of those trust falls or anything, you're like, I'm never doing that, right? Every, I've done it quite a bit. And every time I do one of those team building exercises, I think to myself, I sure hope they're gonna catch me. Right, and you have this moment in the back of your head, as you start to fall back, I mean, you know, usually you're a good six feet off the ground or so, and as you start to fall back, you always have that moment where you think, mm, I don't know, I don't know what's about to happen. But you know what happens? The second you get caught, and then you jump down, and now it's your turn to catch somebody else, what do you immediately do? You pay more attention, <laughs> you know, they didn't drop me, I don't wanna drop them. It's exactly like that here. Be quick to ask forgiveness, be resolved. To, to keep short accounts. And when you know you've sinned against someone, as soon as you know it, as soon as it's feasible to go and seek forgiveness, go and do it. Go and do it. I know it's scary. It is better. I promise you the freedom you will experience and feel, the joy within the body that will take place, the maturity that we will grow into together if we keep short accounts and are quick to ask for forgiveness when we've sinned. And friends, and then to give that forgiveness, to give it. 
And to say, yes, I know it's fundamentally true. Let's go back to what we said at the very beginning. What is most true of us who are in Christ Jesus? Is it that sin that we just committed? Is that what's most fundamentally true about our identity? No. What is most fundamentally true about you if you're in Christ Jesus is you are righteous by the blood of Christ. And friends, it's not, it's not a righteousness that you had to kind of build up. He gave his righteousness to you planted it in you, the theological term is imputed to you. Imputed it to you, he gave it to you. And it's yours, meaning his righteousness resides within you. Now our job is to, is to grow in letting it move from the center of ourselves out to every limb of our body, out to every practice of our mouth, every word of our mouth, every practice of our, of our lives. So resolve to be quick to ask for forgiveness. So those are four resolutions. We could do more, but I just, I wanted to give you those four. And could I ask you, like Jonathan Edwards, when he was in his 20s, resolved these 70 things and he would monthly remind himself of all those 70 things. Would you remind yourself of these resolutions? If you're willing to make them, would you make them, capture them, write them down and return to them? say, I am resolved to do this, not in my own power and strength, but in the power of the Spirit given to me so that I might walk in these resolutions and that my church family might grow in love as a result. Instead of turning the sins of others over in our minds and in our words, let's resolve to turn the love of Christ over in our minds and in our words, to churn on it, to chew on it, to weigh it, to consider it, to understand it, to put it under the microscope. Instead of putting one another's sins under the microscope, and we'll be the richer for it. Let's pray together, and then let's worship together to close our time. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you have not kept a record of our wrongs, not counted our trespasses against us, you tell us in 1 Corinthians 5, 19. Not counted our trespasses against us, but reconciled us to the Father and made us ministers of reconciliation. Thank you for it. What a beautiful truth. So help us now. This is hard, Lord. What your word has challenged us to do tonight is hard to do. And we ask you to help us. We ask you to give us the power and the strength and the wisdom and the discernment. We ask you to, to fill us, Holy Spirit, so that we might walk in this truth. Thank you for the privilege of examining your word tonight as a church family. Now receive our praises. Receive our praises. You're worthy of them. You're worthy. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.